Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about Paris. That's why you can listen to this episode in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this Paris guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge and you can get any question about Paris answered by real people right here. The best way to visit the Eiffel Tower, how to use the metro, where to find an absolutely beautiful brasserie right now in any neighborhood. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circa Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circatravel.com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Circa. Gustave Eiffel once said, I ought to be jealous of the tower. She is more famous than I am. Unless you have been living in a parallel universe, you'll know that he is referring to his world-renowned creation, the Eiffel Tower, that iconic Grand Dame of the Paris skyline. As a Parisian, I may be biased, but I would bet that ours is the most instantly recognizable cityscape in the world. In this episode, I am taking you on an architectural tour to understand exactly why Paris looks so damn Parisy. We will mention lots of monuments, streets, squares, parks, boulevards and buildings. But don't worry, there will be maps, notes and info on the places mentioned in this episode in the Circa app, as well as all the other full guide episodes to this wonderful city. So, if you want to go right to the soul of Paris and understand what makes our city so alluring, you're in the right place. And remember, don't forget to look up. Circa. Love the world you live in and will help you explore it. I don't mean to sound shallow, but come on, my city is really, really good looking. There's a reason why artists and movie makers come here to capture beauty. Paris is flat out, take your breath away, gorgeous. Even after all these years of living here, the romantic sweep of the zinc rooftops of Parisian apartment buildings can still make my heart skip a beat. I'm Serene Ricard Millet, an adopted Parisian. 
I have lived all over this swirling mess of a city, worked in every neighborhood, danced in every club, and seen every nook and cranny of this city. And, like most Parisians, our writer Hannah Melter included, I pretend to be blasé about the Eiffel Tower, but I still can't help but smile when I see it suddenly pop out of nowhere as I ride my bicycle. I can't help but stop and look for a second when I see it all lit up and sparkling at night time. I still get a thrill from crossing the River Seine on a spring morning and stopping on Pont des Arts to watch the Seine glint and glimmer in the sunlight, but also to see the city's 37 bridges stretch across the river and our magnificent buildings spiking the skyline, the Louvre, the Assemblée Nationale Parliament building and the Musée d'Orsay. I may curse the noise and traffic, but I can't deny the majesty of this city's wide tree-lined avenues and boulevards. And then, there's those little details that you only get in Paris. Our green kiosque de presse or newsstands that you will find near the metro stations matching the green of the bouquinist booksellers that line the Seine. Plus, the ironwork metro entrances, including a few of the original Art Nouveau ones, like Abbesse Metro, right in the heart of Amélie Town in Montmartre. And if our city is beautiful, well, it's not by accident. You see, Paris was custom-designed to look wonderful. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the skyscrapers of New York that reach up to the clouds. I'm totally charmed by the visual mess that is London. It shouldn't work, and yet it does. But Paris is different. Paris is uniform. Paris is picturesque. Paris looks like somebody built it for a movie set. And all of us Parisians are just two million extras that got hired to decorate the scene. And in many ways, it was. The look of Paris as we know and love it today was created way back in the 1860s and the 70s in the period of the Second Empire. Napoleon III decided not to stop the natural and sprawling spread of the city, but to speed it right up to bring it into the modern era in one fell swoop. To execute his grand vision, he employed Baron Georges Eugène Haussmann, a bold and incredibly effective préfet, or superintendent, and smooth political operator. He was tasked with realizing the ambitious emperor's vision and transposing it into the living, breathing city. This style of architecture became known as Haussmannien and it set the stage for the most illustrious and productive period in the history of Paris, La Belle Époque. From around 1870 to the beginning of World War I in 1914, everyone who was anyone gathered in our city's cabarets, shopped in our department stores and came to our events. They admired our artists, copied our fashion and, of course, drank our wine. Today, Paris is the 21st century city which still, in large part, looks a hundred years older than it is. The Osmanian look of our architecture, the small quartier laid out around elegant city squares, the uniform buildings split out into small but elegant apartments, means Parisians live in a very particular way. 
So let's immerse ourselves in it. We will learn about why it is like it is, what makes it so unique, and get a feeling of what it truly means to be a Parisian, to live in Paris, and not just visit it. I don't just want you to see it, I want you to feel it. And hopefully, pretty soon, you will start noticing all the little details that I still love so much about this often maddening, but always captivating city. Paris before it looked like Paris. A couple of hundred years ago, Paris was not the picturesque beauty we know today. No, madame. In fact, all the way up until the mid-1800s, Paris was kind of messy. A historian at the time described a chaos of narrow roads and badly aligned housing. Unsanitary, congested and dangerous and hampered with accidents. Oh la la. We'll start on Ile de la Cité. This is where Paris, as we know it, began. Way back around 250 BC, a humble Celtic tribe called the Parisi of Gaul lived here. They used canoes to move up and down the river. Then the Romans came and started doing what they did best, building. They built bridges across the river to the area known today as the Latin Quarter and laid down straight roads. Rue Saint-Jacques, which runs straight through the Ile de la Cité, was first laid out by the Romans. There is also Rue des Martyrs, today full of cute cafés and independent boutiques that go straight up Montmartre in the north of the city. They put a royal palace where today you will find the Palais de Justice and the Sainte-Chapelle, which would later be a royal palace of the French monarchy. The beautiful Sainte-Chapelle church was built to adjoin the palace of Louis IX, the highly religious king who wore a scratchy shirt made from hair to keep his thoughts pure and then went on the Crusades. For his dedication, he would become St. Louis after his death. Nearby, on the south side of the island, right on the river, the Romans built a temple. Where they placed it has been a holy site for thousands of years, even today, because this is where you will find one of our city's most famous landmarks, Notre Dame Cathedral. Notre-Dame de Paris is an exquisite example of early Gothic architecture. The first stone was laid by Bishop de Sully in 1163. It is hard to imagine the effort and manpower required to build this huge church in the Middle Ages. It was 427 feet by 157 feet inside and over 200 feet high. All completed without machinery and technological support. It was the work of many lifetimes, as construction didn't conclude until 1345. On the square in front of the church, you can see the stunning circular rose window depicting Mary Our Lady. In the middle, you can see the judgment. On the right, some of the punishments that await those sent to hell, like riding naked on horseback for eternity, which is the punishment for adultery, or being defecated on forever some kind of punishment for corruption. 
For an example of this, look closely on the right side and you will see a king and bishop looking rather upset. The stories told with pictures on the portals were intended to serve both as an education and a warning. This was the centerpiece of medieval Paris. But the grand and elegant plaza you're standing on now did not exist until the 1800s. Instead, this was an intricate network of alleyways and slum housing stretching all the way up to the church portals. You can get an idea of how cramped things were around here by looking at the markings on the floor. A map of the former roads and buildings are carved into the stone under your feet. If you're traveling with your family, invite your children to explore the map and along the way challenge them to find Point Zéro, the small circular engraving that marks the point from which all France's roads are measured. In Victor Hugo's Notre-Dame de Paris, the legendary author describes the city as the labyrinth it once was. He sets the scene for the court of miracles, dens of crime, slums from which beggars would return at the end of the day, miraculously cured. If we cross over to the right bank from Ile de la Cité, we'll find some of the only remnants of the medieval city. Rue François Miron has some of the oldest remaining houses in Paris, dating from the early 1500s you'll see the carefully restored wood beams on the tall, skinny buildings at number 11. At 12 Rue des Barres, you'll see another typically medieval house tucked behind the Église Saint-Gervais. You won't miss it, thanks to its distinctive rhombus façade, where a narrower bottom section supports a wider top half, looking kind of like a person with a beer belly. Why the odd shape? Houses were taxed based on their ground footprint, so it paid to keep things thinner at the bottom. Crazy, right? For reasons we're about to understand much better, there are only a few other traces of medieval Paris to keep your eyes open for. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Osman the Destroyer the Paris of the early 1800s was still in a pretty medieval state. It was dark and it smelled pretty bad. The locals would just throw their waste right out into the street. The roads were narrow and the tall mash of houses blocked out the light for residents. Air circulated very badly. All in all, a far cry from the chic urban fairy tale that surrounds you right now. One writer at the time went as far as to describe the area around the Louvre and Ile Saint-Louis, today pretty much the most expensive real estate in Paris, as a cesspit. 
You can still get an idea of just how narrow the streets were if you cross to the left bank and visit an alleyway called La Rue du Chat qui Pêche, or Road of the Fishing Cat. Stand in the middle and you'll likely be able to touch both sides with your arm spread. It's 1.8 meters wide. This was very typical in medieval times. It was narrow roads like this that were so easy to barricade for protesters and revolutionaries. Victor Hugo in his novel Les Misérables describes the 1830 July Revolution. Some of the most vivid scenes take place on the barricades that were so easy and effective to create, thanks to the narrow alleys that crisscrossed Paris. In 1850, Napoleon III took leadership of France following a coup. Louis-Napoléon was the nephew of the infamous Napoléon Bonaparte and would rise to lead France almost 50 years after the downfall of his uncle. When he reached power in the mid-17th century, the population was growing fast, in particular outside of the city centre. The housing supply was stretched. Meanwhile, train travel was having a huge effect on the flow of people and commerce. People and goods needed to be able to get in, out and around the city quickly. Before taking the throne, Napoleon III had spent some years living in London among the roast beef, French slang for Brits, roast beefs. Great Britain and France were both global powers, holding vast empires across the world. But London, as a city, was way ahead in terms of technology. Louis-Napoléon was impressed by futuristic London. He was wowed by the elegant parks and gardens, lively public markets and well-paved and gas-lamp-lit roads, not to mention the superior sewage and water system. It was this rationality and functionality that he wanted to copy. The emperor was obsessed with the idea of modernizing Paris and creating a legacy like his uncle did. His office in the residence in the Tuileries Palace was decorated with maps of Paris. He would trace out straight lines in colored pencil on the maps, showing where he wanted to build large new arteries that would modernize the city. There was another motive, though. He wanted to appease the working population of Paris. He also wanted to make uprisings much more difficult by removing the narrow roads that were perfect for barricading. He would instead create large, wide roads to send cannons into, just in case some discontent needed quelling. It was a huge mission, and he needed help. He needed a doer. So he hired Baron Eugène Haussmann. He was an accomplished political operator and a solid pair of hands. He also had a conservative attitude to both city planning and society and guided Napoleon III to concentrate more on the grand city centre and wealthy west of town than the poorer east of the city, which was the emperor's original focus. He wasted no time in making the transformations between the years of 1853 and 1870. The biggest changes were the following. Number one, building wide avenues, creating arteries that linked together previously unlinked neighborhoods. Number two, 
creating new city parks and squares inspired by Louis Napoleon's time in London. The idea of the elegant local squares in chic neighborhoods like Kensington or St. James was borrowed, but whereas these were locked private spaces in London, only open to local residents, in Paris, they were open for public use. These cute local meeting points with bandstands and play areas for children are still hubs for daily life in Paris. We read on the benches, our kids play on the manège or the carousel ride. Try the Square d'Anvers in the shadow of Montmartre in the 9th arrondissement, complete with charming playground and bandstands. Number three. He annexed Paris's closest suburbs to integrate a growing working population. Number four. He revolutionized the water system, creating aqueducts, fountains, and sophisticated sewers. You can even learn more about the latter by visiting the sewer museum. It reopened after three years of renovations in 2021, so you could say it's in pristine condition. Inside, you'll learn all about the history of Parisian sanitation up to the present day. Give it a go, or else you can keep your kids in line by threatening to take them there if they act up. You can get a picture of all these changes by going to the top of the Arc de Triomphe. This is maybe my favorite viewpoint in Paris, and it's much less crowded than the Eiffel Tower. You have an incredible view of the radiating avenues in this swanky part of town. Paris architecture is laid out before you in a kind of retrospective. Standing on the top of the Arc, with the Louvre in the back, which signifies the Old Kingdom, the arc in the middle representing the Industrial Revolution and La Défense skyscrapers of modern or future Paris ahead of you. Haussmann also codified the style of the buildings we live in today, creating the style of architecture, Haussmannien, that takes his name and probably dominates your mental image of Paris. Most people who live in the city center live either in Haussmann buildings or buildings that emulate his style. And here's the thing. The buildings we live in have a huge effect on the way we live. And for the time you're here, possibly the way you live too. You recognize them at once. They are beige in color, that unique Parisian sandstone. They stand at either six or seven floors with a wrought iron balcony on the second and fifth levels. Traditionally, the larger and grander first and second levels contain the most rich and sumptuous apartments. The top level, up in the attics, is the historical home of the Chambre de Bonne, or maid's room. As the name suggests, these were once the servants' quarters. Now they provide housing for students and new immigrants. It's kind of a rite of passage. For example, Hannah, who wrote this episode, lived in a 13-square-meter, six-floor walk-up when she first moved to Paris. It had one window and a kitchen, a hot plate and a mini-fridge, which was accessible from the bed. The toilet and the shower were separated from the main room by a curtain. But hey, it's Paris. 
This may be extreme, but in fact most of us, even those with significant budgets, live in relatively small apartments, say around 800 square feet for a family. We live stacked on top of one another and gazing across the street at our neighbors like we're all in life-size dollhouses. This creates a certain intensity, a certain intimacy to the way we live here. Watching the other people so tightly packed together is actually the best theater in Paris. Always look up because you might see lovers arguing through an open French door, a dog on a balcony barking at his friends below, a nonchalant smoker surveying the world from his attic window, someone watering plants, someone stretching, or even someone looking back at you. Because not many of us have outdoor space, you're lucky to have a balcony or a little patio a full-on backyard is like actual gold dust. And so this also changes our relationship with the city around us, right? We don't have gardens, so the city squares become our communal gardens. We don't have backyards, so our café terrasse becomes our meeting places, a sort of public commons where we come to laugh, cry and set the world to rights. The public space in Paris is an extension of our living space, and so naturally, we have always cared very much about the design of these spaces. Did someone order a skyscraper? So because Napoleon III and Osman made the city so uniform, modern buildings stand out. They're the freaks. And the OG freak is our famous friend, the Eiffel Tower. When the 1,000 feet huge iron structure was first built for the World's Fair of 1889, 100 years after the French Revolution, it caused quite the stir. The design came from Gustave Eiffel, a renowned engineer who had already designed the internal structure of the Statue of Liberty in New York City. Originally, the tower was only meant to stand for 18 months. Eiffel brokered a deal. He asked the government to allow the structure to stand for 20 years and he would repay the building costs. He had the great idea of adding elevators designed by the Otis brothers from Chicago Charging entry, and then, boom, a star was born. He recouped his money in six months, and today, it is still Paris's most visited attraction. The locals, however, considered it an eyesore. Many wrote to complain. Some even worried it would fall on their house. French writer Maupassant famously declared it his favorite place to have lunch because it was the only place he couldn't see the Eiffel Tower. It's still worth going up, and not for that cynical reason. To avoid long lines, be sure to book a time ticket in advance, and if you can, aim to go around opening time when it's quieter. If you're feeling fit, you may even opt to climb the staircase. It's never busy. The World's Fairs were quite the trend back in what was the full swing of the Belle Epoque, Paris's golden age at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. Long-distance travel was not accessible to most, but the fairs gave regular people a taste of other countries around the world. 
And these blockbuster events were huge catalysts for building. In fact, in Paris, we owe some of our most famous architecture to them. The entranceway for the next World's Fair was the ultra-bling-bling Pont Alexandre III, a bridge often regarded as the most extravagant in the city with its ornate gilded statues. The whimsical glass-dome Grand and Petit Palais were also built for this World's Fair. This is also the year that the Parisian metro system was inaugurated, with the first line, still line one today, linking Porte Maillot in the west to Porte de Vincennes in the east. The curving, floral, Art Nouveau entranceways were designed by France's most famous architect of that style, Hector Guimard. One of his other famous creations can be found hidden away on a side street in the Marais. The Agudas Hakehilo Synagogue on Rue Pavé, known by locals as the Pavé Synagogue, was built for the large intake of Eastern European Jews who came to this neighborhood at the start of the 20th century. Here you'll see an example of how something can stand out against neighboring architecture. Check out its curved edges, elongated vertical lines and decorative glasswork. Art Nouveau was followed by the more geometrical and massive Art Nouveau movement, and Paris houses some wonderful examples of it. On Rue de Rivoli, by the Seine, you will find the jaw-droppingly glamorous La Samaritaine department store, which first opened its doors in 1910 and still features fabulous glasswork and an artfully restored mural on the top floor. There's also the prestigious Théâtre des Champs-Élysées concert venue, the Palais de Tokyo Art Gallery, the Trocadéro Complex across from the Eiffel Tower, and the list goes on. Experience the Golden Age glam firsthand at La Belle Époque, a buzzing bar and restaurant tucked behind the Louvre that features original Art Nouveau interiors. Today, there is another tower that sticks out on the Paris skyline. But perhaps it was never quite accepted in the same way as the Eiffel Tower. I'm talking about Paris's lonely 1970 skyscraper, La Tour Montparnasse. The tower was built as the start of a business district under President Pompidou, and locals were so horrified by its stark appearance on the Paris skyline that they made an actual law to never let buildings like this be constructed again. Now, you need special permission to build above seven stories. Instead, the business district was relegated to the western suburb of the city, an area called La Défense, along the axis of the Champs-Élysées. It creates the unusual circumstance of a commuting population that often travels out of the city instead of in. It's got its own huge monument, also built to commemorate the bicentenary of the revolution. The Grande Arche, a huge metal and glass archway, so large that the Arc de Triomphe could fit inside it. At the top, you can enjoy a spectacular view. From here, you can look back toward the city to the viewpoint where we began, on top of the Arc de Triomphe.
the next Roaring Twenties. The current era is pretty interesting for our city. Despite its look and feel being one of Europe's most historic capitals, certain urban innovations are definitely coming. The pandemic sped up plans to make Paris more pedestrian and bike-friendly. In recent years, there has also been a push to pedestrianize the banks of the Seine. Today, they're kind of like giant pleasure grounds, long concrete city parks. A haven for dog walkers, runners, exercise classes like boxing, cyclists, rollerbladers and the apéro in the summer. Paris mayor Anne Hidalgo made great strides toward a more bike-friendly city. During the pandemic, this plan was accelerated as some major roads in the city were turned into cycle superhighways. If you're a keen cyclist, we recommend renting one of the town hall bikes, the Vélib. Signing up and creating an account before you get here is recommended. Then you can hit the ground pedaling. There are also plans to pedestrianize the Champs-Élysées in time for the 2024 Olympic Games. From urban farms and rooftop vegetable gardens and beehives, Paris is abuzz with new and inventive initiatives designed to future-proof the city. Disused spaces are being reinvented. Take La Recyclerie on the northern edge of the city, a former railway station on the long obsolete Petite Ceinture rail track. It is now a glorious indoor-outdoor restaurant and cultural center where locals sip beer surrounded by urban gardens and even a chicken coop. We even have our own answer to New York's High Line, La Coulée Verte, in the east of town, also a converted raised rail track now populated by plants and local walkers and joggers. The City Hall is investing not only in central Paris, but in the nearby suburbs too, aiming to integrate the Grand Paris, a little like how Haussmann did with the outer arrondissement. Maybe in 100 years or less, areas like Saint-Denis and Ivry will be considered every bit a part of Paris as Montmartre or Belleville. The city waits with bated breath and high standards as to what will come next, but two things are for sure. It will be completely different and somehow reassuringly the same. Thanks for listening to our episode about the architecture of Paris. We hope we've helped you get inspired à la Parisienne. Remember to check out the other Paris episodes in this guide for deeper dives into the history of French food, art and more. Whether you're heading to Paris right now, sometime in the near future, or would just like to learn about a place we truly love, you'll get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or download the Circa app, where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on everything in this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Rome, London, New York, LA, and many, many more. And many, many more to come. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it.
One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.